Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. This week, I'm speaking to Sanusha Naidu, a senior research fellow at the Institute for Global Dialogue, about the BRICS Global Alliance ahead of its upcoming summit in South Africa. We talk about what BRICS countries want, what might be on the agenda in South Africa, and what that could mean for the world to come. Sanusha, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for the invitation and looking forward to the discussion. So we have this upcoming BRICS summit in South Africa. BRICS has been something that has been around for a while, but I think it's increasingly occupying a larger and larger space in the discourse about global politics. The economies of the BRICS countries has now surpassed that of the G7, and BRICS economies could represent more than 50% of the global economy by 2050, even without any expansion. Already, BRICS represents some 40% of the world population, mostly on account of China and India. And yet I think no one really knows quite what to make out of BRICS as an actual entity, if we can think about it as an actual entity. So first of all, can you just walk us through the history of BRICS for listeners, how it was formed, and how South Africa itself ended up joining BRICS, because it was not in the original formulation? Sure, Alan. Um, So the BRICS actually started off as a grouping that was initiated or conceptualized by the Goldman Sachs chief economist, Jim O'Neill. And in that context, it was really around an economic grouping that would have had a lot of return on investment for the clients of Goldman Sachs, where they could advise their clientele base on where the next kind of big pot of money or the big return of investment was to take place. And these countries, which was Brazil, Russia, India, and China, and I think more China and and, and potentially India, had that kind of economic return. And this is where the idea was so-called incubated in terms of a grouping, not necessarily an interstate grouping, one that was kind of formalized or became a formal a state entity, but rather it was really a, uh, for the big investors in the global arena and in looking at the next kind of profit windfall that they could find. There is a bit of dispute by some of the BRICS members today that su- suggests that it wasn't just the, the incubation of this idea by Jim O'Neill, but in, in fact, in a kind of informal way, these countries at the time, excluding South Africa, were talking about especially India, China and Russia, were talking about elements of how to to, to think about the global governance economic architecture and how to deal with issues around currency, vulnerability, sovereignty, challenges around the financial architecture and, of course, the governance reform of the global political architecture. And I think to a large extent, the idea that this kind of debate and discussion was taking place in informal context raises the question about, you know, this idea of whether BRICS is a creation of the Goldman Sachs or whether it was kind of formulating itself towards its formulation in 2009, where it was Russia, India, and of course, China coming together as well as Brazil. But before that, talking about especially China, especially Russia and India, talking about the currency question. So this formalization in 2009 as an interstate grouping kind of finds its legs in what we see today as the BRICS. But South Africa's engagement or joining of BRICS as a member, it really comes in 2010 when the presidency of Jacob Zuma at the time was very, very 
energetic and pursuing a very kind of aggressive approach to becoming a member of the BRICS. And at the time, I think it was really around what kind of importance South Africa could bring in terms of its membership in the BRICS, but also in the fact that it could align its foreign policy to its other global governance footprint within within the AU, within Africa, within SADC, but also in the context of its role in the UN around the governance architecture and the reform agenda of the UN Security Council and other institutional uh, global institutions that needed to be reformed. And of course, from, from the BRIC side, and I think it was China that was instrumental as well in extending the invitation for South Africa to join, I think was really around the idea that you needed the representation of Africa. And of course, South Africa being the kind of actor in the global arena and the kind of status that it was seen to have at the time, saw this voice and agency. I think the big challenge that we must also redress is that there were questions about whether South Africa had the right fit to become a member of the BRICS. It was Jim O'Neill who constantly raised that question, as well as the fact that if you go back to its original objective of the BRICS in terms of the global governance, economic reform, I think it kind of aligns with that and it does align with it from a normative perspective. But in the conceptualization of how Jim O'Neill saw the BRIC, I think it kind of fell outside of that purview. So this is in a nutshell where South Africa comes in. And I think one of the things that South Africa did quite interestingly when it hosted the first summit in 2013 was to bring the concept of the outreach partnership. And that was with African countries. So it kind of aligned the fact that it, everything that informs its foreign policy pivot is linked to the African policy and how Africa is brought into the foreign policy space of South Africa's engagements as not necessarily being the voice of Africa, but engaging in order for Africa's own agency and own articulation of its agency is integrated into global politics. Yeah, very interesting. A lot for us to get into as we continue this conversation. And I, I want to get back to the centrality of BRICS within South Africa's foreign policy, which which you've already raised. But first of all, what is BRICS vision and what unites it? I think the overarching objective of the BRICS, and, and this also kind of talks to this agreement in terms of the normative principles that the, that informs the BRICS is really the reform agenda and the question around what the global architecture represents as the power dynamic. And this seems to be a common thread for all of the BRICS countries, that you have to think about a world that has moved from the, the post-1945 period to now having actors that are, uh, are much uh, part of the global system, but also are elevated in terms of their power, in whether it's economic power or political power, and their inclusion within the institutions of the global governance system, and what kind of impact and influence and shaping the agenda they have in terms of recognizing both their geographical power and their geostrategic power. And this, I think, is one of the key objectives that the BRICS still remains true to. It's, and this is really part of South Africa's foreign policy orientation. It talks a lot about the multilateral reform. It talks a lot about the global governance architecture, recognizing the changing architecture of new actors or emerging actors, the power dynamics that need to be articulated to demonstrate this representativity of inclusiveness and a just equitable world order. These are all very very fuzzy and warm and, and important concepts and terms that inform the kind of 
discourse that you see in the BRICS if you look at all of its declarations since the 2009 coming together as a, as a formal group. I think since 2009, the world has fundamentally shifted structurally. The structural transformation agenda has become much more important. The questions of the power dynamics in the international system has been challenged by issues around the financial crisis of 2007-2008. You've seen the issue of sovereignty being raised, cybersecurity, questions of climate change, and, and also domestic questions in their, in their respective environments. So I think at the, at, at the most basic level, they still remain true to their, to their formulation and what brings them and holds them together. But I think what now, they, if you're looking at their declarations, you'll see that key issues have been informing these, these, these questions, questions around cybersecurity, counterterrorism, questions around stability in the international economic order, vulnerability in terms of collateral crossfire of conflicts that are not of their making, questions around whether the financial architecture creates more of negative impacts and gives and provides more kind of financial risks to them doing business in the international system. And of course, the real challenge is whether the, the current international architecture is still fit for purpose, in their opinion, or does it need to go move, move forward in a much more inclusive and sustainable manner that gives voice and agency to the BRICS. But I think what also changes in the BRICS now is that they are beginning to realize that their pivot in international affairs and their pivot as a grouping has a lot of attention being focused on them. And that attention is whether they are coalescing as a group. Are they consolidating? Are they institutionalizing? And that is why I think the question on the BRICS expansion has come at a very pertinent moment because it's also about the internal reflection of where the BRICS want to be as the core or the five nucleus countries and where they want to be going forward. So the challenge, I think, is really understanding that within the BRICS, because there's such diversity in terms of democracies and non-democracies, questions of big populations like India and China, questions of the level of the role of the state that actually influences and, and, and has a lot of state-led approach to domestic processes, I think raises the question of how do they coalesce as a group. But up until now, they've always used the tagline that they have this incredible way to agree to disagree. I think as they become, as the BRICS are now maturing further in as a grouping, they will also have to think about what will define this kind of agree to disagree from an institutional level, and how do they find those those common grounds? Because expanding the BRICS also means that you've got to think about how that will impact on the influence and the five countries. Do they want to give away their power or do they want to con keep their controlling interest like they do in the new development bank? And the final say will, or decision will still have to be made by the five nuclear nucleus countries. So I think these are some of the, 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 the more niggling issues, but the much more pertinent issues that the BRICS has to think about in going forward because the international architecture is now at an inflection point. To what degree do you think BRICS has moved from as you were describing it there as an alliance very much focused on these international financial architecture questions related to being uh, emerging economies? And how much is it moving increasingly towards something looking more like a political alliance, something that looks more like an anti-Western or anti-Western order alliance? Or, or is that identity something that is itself still very much up for debate among the members themselves? It's, it's a very important question because this identity that the BRICS want to pursue, I think they are feeling the, the heat 
in terms of how the international system and the uh, and and the fragmentation and the kind of contestations that you see in 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 global governance institutions have placed the kind of us and them scenario. So you've got this debate on the normative question. You've got this debate about whether the, the BRICS are a united front. You've got this debate about whether the BRICS are making a a serious impact from a strategic perspective in the global governance and the global political and economic architecture. Just to go back a little bit, I think the BRICS will look at their successes as the creation of the New Development Bank, they look at the success of the creation of different streams around the academic forum, the think tank forum, the BRICS political party structure, and of course, well, it's not structured yet, but they, they most probably will think of it as a structure in the near future, and other kind of avenues in terms of track one, track two, and track three diplomacy spaces, and how that actually improves the kind of engagement amongst the BRICS in terms of where they are finding a common set of agenda issues and also a common set of expressions and how that can be create a level of, of consensus. But I think in terms of are they moving the needle at the international level in terms of the influence they have, I think there you have competing views. You have one view that will say they still don't have the level in which to shape the international arena or they, they're still not at the level in which what defines a global, a global actor with preponderant preponderance of power. I don't like the term hegemon, so I use preponderance of power and dominant spaces. And and I think that's kind of asking the question of how we've seen the world since 1945 as having an actor that can actually create the institutions and keep those institutions in check. And the question is, will the BRICS be able to do that? Or are the BRICS the, the, the group that needs to do that? Or is it that they are much more fragmented in the way they see the world because within the BRICS as well you have a lot of bilateral relations that can overshadow the the collective engagement the kind of grouping engagement so you have this BRICS summit you have the the different avenues in the, the in the in the three tracks that i mentioned but when it comes to bilateral engagements when it comes to what makes the BRICS go forward the national interest becomes very predominant and I think that's a key question in whether the BRICS is going to challenge, not just challenge, but is it going to be willing to absorb some of those structural fragmentations? Are they willing to take a much more than just a role to say that we want to reform these institutions? Are they going to lead these institutions? And right now, the jury is out on that because you have these two competing narratives, one that says that they, they, they can't meet the, the requirements or they don't have the requirements to be a, a group of countries that can reshape or exert their preponderance of power because they don't have that power. And then there's the other side of the argument, which is, again, takes a very kind of pro-BRICS approach to say that that's not the intention of the BRICS. So I think the, the, that in itself raises the question around what this this future architecture of the global governance system will look like and what is it that the BRICS wanted to look like and is there consensus on that because if you take India for example you know India in this moment in history is the most it, you know it's, it's it's enjoying its newfound strategic ambit in, in its foreign policy it's able to engage with everybody and it's able to utilize its strategic independence in its foreign policy to say we can do business with who we want to how does that link up with the way China is seen? Uh, how does that link up with the way Brazil is seen? So I think at the end of the day, 
what you're beginning to see is, is the real hard questions about what the BRICS is going to be doing in these institutions. Are they going to be policing these institutions? Are they going to be underwriting the new rules and norms of the international architecture? And if they're going to underwrite those new rules and norms of the international architecture, whether you're reforming it or transforming it from a structural perspective in terms of trade, access to markets, investment, liquidity, equity, debt questions, all of that in terms of their role. So that has been our mainstay um, kind of mapping of the world after 1945 is that these institutions have been, they've been gatekeepers in the international system that have basically under underwrote the rules, enforced the rules and ensured that the, the, the international system played by a particular set of rules. Now, as you say, it's fragmented, it's unpredictable, it's contested, it's, it's, it's at a point where change is imminent, but in that change, that change also represents, I would say, a set of narratives that are still not fundamentally clear about what the BRICS represents in that change. So how do you think the debate within BRICS is leaning on this question of whether or not to try to reform the existing architecture, the existing global institutions, or whether or not to essentially try to create uh, their own parallel versions of them, like you've seen with this new development bank, uh, like you've seen in some ways there's a parallel IMF that the BRICS has also tried to create. So which way do you think BRICS countries are leaning in this question of reform versus setting up something entirely parallel? My sense is the reform is taking much longer than they want it to take especially if you look at the UN Security Council. The contradiction there is that you have two permanent members of the Security Council that are members of the BRICS. So my question to the other non-Security Council members of the BRICS, Russia, I mean, India, China, India, Brazil, and South Africa, which makes up the IPSA countries, what is it that you want out of this reform? Do you want the veto or do you want just the fact that you get a seat at the table? Is it just that you want the Security Council to be expanded, where some countries will ha- will still retain the, the, the veto instrument? If you're going to go with a much more kind of hard-hitting approach to say that we must start with a complete kind of reforming and transformation of the UN Security Council, and that means everybody starts from scratch, no veto. Or you have some kind of way in which it is done, where there's a rotation in terms of who serves as as part of the permanent council. Then, of course, I'm not sure if the 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 P5, whether it's the Russia, India, or Brazil, or Britain, France, and and the US, are going to agree to it. And I think this has been an interesting debate because that seems to have, I wouldn't say fallen off the agenda, but it's kind of like. When you read the declaration, they call for the reform of the UN Security Council, but you actually want to see what are the details around this. So I think on the question of of the alternate institutions, because it's so protracted in terms of the institutions that are currently in this context of reform and the issue of how the countries of of the BRICS are looking at the reform and whether they are coming at it with a blueprint or a roadmap, it makes it difficult to actually have that negotiations happening at, 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 at light speed. And so creating alternate institutions, in my opinion, gives you the ability to say, well, why are we waiting for that process to take off and the protractedness to be resolved because of the competing interests, etc.? We can set up these institutions and we can move forward and we can create those alternate institutions until such time we are able to integrate them all into a kind of overarching global governance architecture that represents the kind of inclusivity and the voice of the global south. 
But in that alternate institutions as well, there are contradictions. I mean, there are challenges. Does India want China to become dominant in the BRICS? How would India react to that because of India and China's history around the the line of, of control and over the border questions and over the fact that India does see China as more of a dominant actor in the in the Indo-Pacific. And that represents another set of geopolitical and strategic considerations. And then, of course, in the case of Africa, you know, how would other African countries look towards South Africa and saying, are you dominant and do you really represent us in the BRICS and so forth? So I think, you know, it's, it's, it's almost hedging, if, if that makes sense. And the countries that now have put their hands up and asking for potential membership into the BRICS are also hedging at this point in time because they're looking at the system, which, as you say, is contested, but it's also protracted and it's not moving forward. And so... The instit- alternate institutions are really like a placeholder for in, in terms of the interim. And how has the war in Ukraine changed internal BRICS dynamics? Obviously, Russia was one of the founding members of BRICS. It's obviously brought a lot more global attention on BRICS as an alliance. Uh, it's obviously uh, stressed South Africa's foreign policy, uh, which is which is something we can talk about later. Um, but, but how has it changed the internal dynamics within BRICS itself? I think for the longest time, while the BRICS could could claim the sovereignty issue, and really, I think it's a, it's the big elephant in the room for the BRICS, because now you have one member of the BRICS, which, according to international law, according to the UN system, and even if you, you know, we we we're not going to get into the dynamics of of whether it was whether it was agitation or whatever prompted this, but the point is that there is international law, and if you think about the fact that the BRICS look at the UN system as a key architect. I mean, for them, that's key. I mean, China has always said that you have to follow in the context of the Charter of the UN. This actually raises that quandary I mentioned earlier, because it means now that are you going to basically talk to your BRICS partner, Russia, which has, in essence, challenged international law and violated international law in that context? Or are you going to basically be muted? And how do you respond to that? Because that, I think, will also give you a sense of whether or not the BRICS aligns very very closely and sticks to that kind of sovereignty question and in terms of international law and the UN Charter. More importantly, at the, the recent BRICS security meeting, the meeting of the security ministers, council meeting of the BRICS, the Chinese foreign minister made some very important statements about respecting sovereignty, not, not having your sovereignty infringed upon, but he also spoke about an, a world order that's not reflecting the structural changes and the structural fragmentation of power and it's not and, and, and their new power centers and new financial centers of power. But I think this is the challenge for, for the BRICS because before they can even start thinking about expansion, I think they have to start thinking about what is going to be their kind of institutional architecture, what's going to be a governance document for themselves when in, and, and when something like this happens, how do you actually address it? Do you address it or do you talk about it in broad strokes? And that, I think, is, is something that they can't shy away from for much longer. And they have to talk about it in a sense where as much as you're talking about this reform agenda and you're talking about inclusiveness and agency and sustainable development and respect for sovereignty and so forth, you have to apply it in a consistent manner. Do you think that it's almost inevitable that the Ukraine war has made BRICS seem uh, more anti-G7, more anti-NATO, more anti-Western? Is that is that just an inevitability of this war? I think they would they would argue that they don't see it that way. They would argue that it's really about the fundamental question of, is this world equitable? Is this global system inclusive? 
Is it about everybody is treated with equal respect and equal rights? I think the challenge is the way the narrative wants to redu- reduce it to a a conflictual relationship between the two sides. I think from where I sit in in South Africa, and of course, really in 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 terms of the African context, it's always as if Africa is comes at the bottom end of the space, and that we have to basically follow the the rules and 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 the alignment of rules and the questions of others and we have to abide by that and and i think this is the challenge so it's not necessarily being anti it's about just asking can we just have a a discussion about inclusivity you we talk about this normative international system are based on rules and and respect for human rights but sometimes it doesn't always work out like that in practice because these institutions are selective or the way the, the resolutions are taken is that they they don't necessarily provide for inclusivity in terms of access to markets or the immigration question and and so forth so does this mean that the brics is anti i think in some way the brics may be raising certain of these uncomfortable questions that need to be answered but because they the brics and they has in and, and and the way the world is built it's never been built for peaceful coexistence it's built in a sense that it has to be about one being right and the other being wrong so it's a very kind of winner versus loser approach that this group in itself is anti this and i and and i i would say that if you go back and you uh, you take the brics out of the equation i think these questions have been constantly being raised from a social justice perspective and social justice and rights perspective So so I want to talk about the upcoming summit and South Africa's objectives for it and powers as a chair of the summit. But quickly before we get there just to touch on this subject again of Ukraine and South Africa more specifically. BRICS has obviously posed challenges for South Africa in terms of trying to maintain its ostensible non-aligned approach in the war in Ukraine. It's obviously a partner with Russia on BRICS. South Africa and the US obviously also view themselves as partners. Um how well has south africa managed to maintain its non-aligned policy um in your point of view obviously there's been a lot of accusations the us has accused south africa of supporting russia in the war um and clearly this poses you know a really simple challenge to south africa's foreign policy given its different equities on either side of the war so uh, has south africa done a good job of navigating this um is there any way it could have done a better job I think South Africa has taken a lot of body blows for this and I think the bigger challenge for South Africa is the way that it articulates its foreign policy. I can I can see where it wants to say that it has an independent foreign policy that it will make decisions based on that independence of its decision making and its foreign policy. But I think the way it comes across tends to create confusion, ambiguity and also it 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 kind of doesn't give you a sense of whether or not the language that they use is non-aligned or whether it's a defense or a reaction to a situation and it's not just on the ukraine issue i think the ukraine issue has become front and center it it's very much on our on our news screens and pages of our our print media and electronic media as the conflict of of all conflicts right now but i think this is something that we have to also be honest about and raise questions about conflicts in Africa and how those conflicts are being reported on and whether they're given the kind of attention that we need to look at coming back to South Africa i think the challenge for South African foreign policy is and and the way that it's communicated is really the issue i think 
Overall, South Africa would like to say that it has this foreign policy that doesn't necessarily only look at the world in a particular way, but it wants to basically look at all particular angles of, of, of what it needs to make as a decision. Unfortunately, the way it comes across in the communication tends to play into these dramatic narratives that South Africa is condoning or seen to be non-aligned, but when in fact it has this relationship with Russia. And I find that is where we have to really sit down, our policymakers, our government and our strategic analysts, as well as decision makers, have to sit down and ask themselves, how do we communicate an effective foreign policy strategy that tells the world that we can be non-aligned and we can still retain our autonomy and defend our position? I think the problem South African foreign policy has right now is that it's reactive and it's almost caught in the crosswinds of the way in which this dynamic between party and state is being defined in terms of the, some of the, 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 the issues around what a progressive internationalism means. I think the bigger challenge is for us to understand what our priorities are in terms of our national interest. And, and as much as we have the national framework document that was released last year by DERCO, the Department of International Relations and Cooperation, on from our national interest framework document, I think it needs to be much more anchored in what our what our core priorities are for our national interest, and I think there are there are, there, are, there are issues here that make the foreign policy confusing at times, or make the action and the and the communication confusing because it's a defense of you and your position, but it comes across as a defense of of not just your relationship with Russia, but almost like a defense of Russia. And this is why I think we find ourselves in this very unfortunate set of circumstances around the African Growth and Opportunity Act with regard to our, our engagement with the US. I think also what's important is that as much as the the perception is that South Africa has moved away from its traditional partners or its the partners of the global north, I think the fact that you're seeing these number of visits happening our trade minister was in, in, in the U.S. recently. We've got other, other senior U.S. government officials going to be visiting South Africa in the next two weeks. Questions around whether, it's, whether we're going to be removed out of a Goa, does it place any kind of challenge on our status in, in a Goa. And, and, and as much as the, the narrative seems to suggest that perhaps the U.S. has given up on us, I think the, the question that you're having this engagement, these diplomatic meetings and other kinds of behind-the-scenes engagements suggest that both sides do see it in that way, as, as, as both being critical to each other. So I think this is why it's, it's, it's important that we understand what, the, what is coming out in, of, in, in terms of the reaction to this to situation that South Africa's foreign policy is not aligned. But I think the challenge is really around understanding that there's also a change happening in the U.S., and understanding what that change means and how that change in the U.S. is affecting the U.S. foreign policy and its outward engagements and its outward interactions in, 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 a global, in, a, in, in the global context. And I think that is because of the fact of what's going on internally within the U.S. domestic environment and where that's going to be if we are to forecast what the relationship between South Africa and the U.S. is going to be in the next 12 months or after the next national election in South Africa in 2024. So I think for me, 
I would be a little bit more cautious to say that, it's, that, that, that we give the impression that our foreign policy has completely become non-aligned. I think it's a question of understanding how do you put across your communication strategy and your strategic imperatives in terms of your relationships with the rest of the world and not just about trying to defend one relationship. And how did South Africa manage to convince Putin to not attend the summit in South Africa? We, we haven't mentioned this yet, but it is where most of the news attention has been at in terms of the BRICS summit and this awkward situation of, of whether or not Putin could attend, even though he's been indicted by the International Criminal Court, which South Africa would in theory be legally obliged to arrest him. And the latest is that South Africa is saying that Putin will not be able to attend. Do you have any insight on some of the diplomacy that went into that? I don't want to speculate. I have no insight on, on what were the discussions behind closed doors with President Putin on his attendance and the fact that the, the impact would have been a much greater weight on South Africa, I think, in terms of what it had to do in the context of the ICC arrest warrant. What we do know, what we've heard from, from the presidency and government agencies and officials is that there was a lot of talking happening between President Ramaphosa and Putin. I think there was definitely consultation with the other BRICS countries to for South Africa to present. And this is my interpretation. It's not government. It's not based on any inter, inside, internal knowledge that I have. It's just the way I see it from standing on the outside looking in, that there must have been a lot of in discussion with the other BRICS countries, explaining the situation and the context and what will be the impact and the, and the consequences if President Putin had arrived for the summit. I think that from, my, from where I sit, I think the big question in my mind is whether or not this was all just done for, for the outward appearance that Putin was going to come and he was going to defy the International Criminal Court's arrest warrant and South Africa was going to allow this to happen? Was this posturing? And was there, was there ever an intention to attend the summit? Was, is, is a question that's kind of in my mind in terms of this, because the sense you get is that if, if, if really it was about challenging the dominance of one set of actors and, and, and their influence over the international architecture and their, 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 their interaction and their influence over the, the ICC, as you can hear from different media reports as well as speeches from President Putin that there's a challenge here about whether these institutions are being applied in a uniform way or, they are, or, they, or there's some kind of a disingenuity about them. I would ask the question, you know, if that was the case, was it always President Putin's intention to attend or was it to grandstand and then, of course, at the last minute, withdraw? So let's move on to the actual summit, uh, which, which now that Putin is not attending it, it seems to pave the way for a bit more of a, a, a normal summit. Um, what, what are South Africa's main objectives for the summit? How does it see itself representing Africa, African nations at the summit and within BRICS? And really, what are its powers as chair to shape the summit and its agenda? So I think now that Putin is not attending, it actually allows the BRICS to get back to its business. So I think for South Africa, one of the things that South Africa was tasked with from the previous summit was that it was asked to look at how to do, how, what the criteria would be on the expansion. So that we, we must ex expect a report back, not necessarily a, a decision on the criteria itself being accepted. But I think as the foreign ministers have suggested in the June meeting here in Cape Town, and it was again the Indian foreign minister 
who said it's a you know and 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 the South African Foreign Minister Dr. Naledi Pando, who said that it is actually a work in progress. So I think that's the one thing that will be on the agenda, and it will definitely be one that South Africa would like to play a critical role in, in terms of how it may shape that, especially since it it was South Africa that created the innovation when it first hosted the summit in 2013 on the outreach partnership, which then China innovated on and created BRICS+. Plus. So that's one one issue. The other issue, I think, is women in politics and peacekeeping. That's something that South Africa is very passionate about. And this is something has, South Africa has been aligning its, 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 its foreign policy to in its work in, in the AU under Agenda 2063, in its peace and security architecture. And then, of course, on the currency issue, I think the, the BRICS Sherpa, Dr. Anil Suklal, who a couple of days ago gave an interview and said, that the, the issue of creating a BRICS currency is not on the agenda, but they'll be looking at the current at, at, at the issues of trade and, and 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 payment systems, and that's key as well because that means that you do have systems in place that countries are using in the BRICS for an interpayment system, using local currencies to pay to trade in. But I think this will be something that will feature much more prominently and looking at the way ahead and the and, and the movement ahead, especially as well around using kind of tech- technological ways in which you can start trading through cryptocurrency or whatever. But all of this requires a lot of thinking and a lot of issues going forward. And then, of course, South Africa would definitely want to place the the context of African development and African sustainable development and issues around the just energy transition as well onto the agenda. And it's something that I think has come in as well from the previous summit as, uh, declaration. And, and which countries do you think are at the top of the list to join BRICS if BRICS does decide to expand? For now, if I had to hedge bets, and I'm very bad at betting, so I always lose. I think look at it regionally. I would say Argentina. I would say from Southeast Asia, you may have countries like Vietnam. I think maybe in South Asia, I think India may be looking towards possibly Bangladesh or maybe I think India will be a little bit more hesitant from Pakistan. In Africa, I, I, I think you're looking at Egypt if you take the continent as a whole, but if you're going to divide it between North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, the possibility of Nigeria from Sub-Saharan Africa or even Kenya. So I think those are some of the, 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 the countries. And don't forget the Gulf states, perhaps UAE. And then maybe we have to think between Saudi Arabia as well. And of course, if, if Iran is in that first cohort of countries that may be invited to be observers or to come in in a kind of a kind of limited application, make a limited application to to join. So that's where I see things right now. But I think at the moment, it's still all very much speculative. I think the BRICS themselves will have to think about how they want to define the criteria and how they want to move forward on on expansion. Thank you very much, Sanusha, for coming on. Oh, absolutely. A pleasure. And um, yeah, thank you very much for the invitation. Thanks for listening. Once again, I'm Alan Boswell, and The Horn is a podcast from the International Crisis Group. Our producers are Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. 